Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com onscript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I just wanted to say at the outset here a word of special thanks to Jason Stark and Taylor Terzak who are producing the OnScript episodes now. They're our new producers and I really appreciate you guys and the work you're doing for this podcast. So um, if you, as some of you recall, uh, Ed Hatke, who had been producing the show for five years, has retired from OnScript and um, he's still staying on in a, in a sort of consultation capacity. But uh, Jason and Taylor are doing a fantastic job, so we have them to thank for these shows getting produced. So thanks so much, and thanks to all of you for listening or supporting OnScript, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall, the University of Oxford. And I'm joined today by my friend, Reverend Dr. Andy Byers, who uh, teaches New Testament at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, what we refer to here as the other place. Um, and he has my job in the other place as tutor in New Testament. Andy is here today to talk about his newest book on the jo- on Johannine literature called John and the Others. Jewish Relations, Christian Origins, and the Sectarian Hermeneutic, which was published by Baylor University Press in 2021. Andy, welcome to OnScript. Great. Thanks, Sarah. It's good to be with you. And this is your second substantial project on John, right? Second. That's right. Yes. So how did you get interested in John's gospel and become one of these um, Johannine scholars that seem to be off in their own sectarian little clique everywhere? How did you get interested in John? (laughs) <laughs> My interest in John came from, well, personal and devotional readings of the gospel, actually. When I was at the University of Georgia and wrangling and wrestling over vocational decisions, wondering about ministry and considering the possibility of the mission field even, I, uh, I ended up deciding I was going to travel around the world, one of these wild hair adventures in a way. And uh, and I remember reading through John's gospel uh, as I was preparing to travel. And as I uh, got the travels underway, I, I uh, was reading John's gospel. And what really struck me is this relationship that Jesus had with his father was something I was envious of. I wanted to have that sort of relationship with God personally But as I was reading and rereading, I noticed that over the course of the narrative, the disciples are included within that uh, relationship that Jesus has with the Father. There are these narrative techniques, strategies, often very implicit and sometimes explicit, that indicate that they are being included within that relationship. Now, I was reading this devotionally as a 21, 22-year-old with no aspirations for any sort of academic life at all. But uh, let's see, it would have been 12, 13 years later, I ended up doing a PhD on that very topic, which is the book you've referred to. And even uh, even knowing how sort of niche Johannine scholarship can be in the world of, of gospel scholarship, you stuck with it, um, not just for your, your PhD thesis, but also for the second book. So what was your 
what was your um what sparked your interest for the second book off, off of your phd research perhaps because this is an extension in some ways and in some ways you're right it is the, the first book is ecclesiology and theosis in the gospel of john and in the book i am trying to recover this idea that I think has been lost in quite a bit of modern Jehannine scholarship, this idea that John actually has an ecclesiology, at least uh, not a formal ecclesiology, of course, the way we would think of in a systematic theological context, but he does have a vision as to who the people of God are called to be. And that, of course, is an ongoing topic of reflection and consideration for me. And this book, John and the Others, came about when I was invited, well, I I was invited to to give a lecture, um, the Tyndall Lecture in Cambridge, and I decided to wrestle with this very difficult subject matter of John and the Jews. And uh, that actually fits in quite nicely with the idea of who, who does John envision the people of God to be? And with uh, a number of studies coming out uh, that for me, challenged uh for me i found to be really challenging readings about calling john uh anti-jewish and uh i had to wrestle with these uh these projects that reinhardt's castle of the covenant came out and uh, i really wanted to to wrestle with this text not just academically but also personally and uh confessionally as someone in the life of the church so uh, the project was born really out of that wrestling I remember one day, Aaron, I was I was walking in to work when I, I was at Cramer Hall at the time, and I was walking through Durham, and I was wrestling over my vocation. You know, do I do I want to be in the life of the church, or do I want to be in the academy? And you know, I'm walking to an academic position where I was training uh, ministers of the gospel, of course, and uh, and I was wrestling with this decision: church, academy, church, academy. And I remember stopping dead in my tracks, uh, really looking upward to the sky, uh, wondering, what am I to do? And I realized I was standing right be- between Durham Cathedral on my right and Abbey House, the Department of Theology at Durham University on my left. And I thought, wow, this is the vocational s- space out of which I write. And John and the others has come out of that space, wanting to bring the full rigors of the academy into the project, but also writing as someone who loves the gospel of John and uh, trains people to preach from the gospel of John and the John's epistles. So yeah, the, the book has come out of that wrestling. And, and kind of along those lines, you wade into some pretty dense theological territory in this book, um, which is a little unusual for a biblical scholar. Um, it's a little u- unusual in Johannine studies. So what made you decide to take that approach um, sort of, I mean, more intentionally than just the, the, you know, light from heaven and Durham Cathedral. Um, but what I think more, <laughs> more specifically, what place do you think that a theological reading like the one that you're offering here has um, within biblical studies, which doesn't always welcome such readings? You are right to point this out. And uh, I'm grateful you asked, why did I do this? Well, I think, I think this came out of a bit of confidence that I had that maybe Maybe I have the PhD, I've published the thesis, maybe it's okay for me to just own a little more fully my theological leanings as an interpreter. We'll see whether or not this works in its reception, actually. 
so so I, I felt like you know I'm at this point where my my post my my role as a New Testament uh, lecturer is one of training up uh, ministers for the life of the church. Certainly, I'm engaged very actively in various different academic circles than just that particular realm of seminary training, or as we say here in the UK, theological college uh, training. So. Uh, yeah, I thought I- I'm just going to own this a little more. And uh, it, it, I think my impulses are to read theologically and confessionally. And my thinking is that, you know, there's a lot of talk within the academy of us owning our social locations. Well, my social location is that of an ordained minister who has a PhD and uh, wants to do rigorous exegesis and teaches in a theological college or seminary. So why not write out of that? Uh, but I wanted to, I didn't want the theological dimension or the confessional dimension to be a compromise, of course, on the exegesis. Um, but I did want it to inform that exegesis. Yeah. And I, I so please don't hear me criticizing that because I am one who, I, I mean, I'm deeply committed to theological readings um, precisely, well, because I do a very similar job um, and because I do think it's yes. important to, to own our social locations. And that's also my social location. Um, I think the, the question that I continue to wrestle with, and so probably the reason I'm asking you the question is what do we think that these readings, these theological readings have to say, not just to the church, um, but actually to the Academy. Um, and, and I think, I think I'm still wrestling with that. You know, what, what do I want my maybe non-theological colleagues to take from this? So what do you think a non-theological colleagues should learn from your theological exegesis of John? What does it contribute to the conversation? Is it typical in podcast interviews to say, that is a great question to stall <laughs> in your answer? Absolutely. Uh, it that is. is a great question. Oh, super. <laughs> that is an excellent question. I, I suppose I would venture this, that I think actually attending to the theology of an outwardly theological text is actually a responsible way to do exegesis. Uh, what I mean is, I think often within our within our academic milieu, we, we sort of come to these texts thinking we have to be as objective as possible, which means we have to be ruthlessly eliminating uh, our presuppositions, and for centuries, of course, those who come to this text come with a presupposition of God and that God is real and God is active through the text in some way. Um, and I think we do have to actually be very alert to those biases and those presuppositions. And this is one of the disciplines for me as a confessional and theological reader is, is, is hoping that the historical studies and disciplines around uh, b- within biblical studies help sharpen me in my own thinking. But I also think that if we ruthlessly eliminate theology out of the text, um, we may actually find ourselves, we may actually short ourselves of insight. So I, th- I think someone who is non-theological uh, may find tremendous fruit in understanding the nature of the text if they are willing to attend to the theological concerns inherent within it. 
And so let's talk about those theological concerns that are, you, you think are inherent in this text. And I think one of them, this is a great turn of phrase, but you, you have a section at the beginning of your book uh, on where you talk about the alterity of the incarnation, and then you develop that actually more fully in your penultimate chapter. So can you just talk about what you mean by the alterity of the incarnation and what, you know, what role that's playing in this project about others and the others in John? Yes. The, the book is written, I'm writing this book to, to counter what I perceive to be what I call the sectarian hermeneutic that governs so much of Johannine studies. That this approach to the text that assumes that it is antagonistic and that is best labeled with the prefix anti. <laughs> John is an anti-society with an anti-language uh, that is anti-Jewish and even anti-Semitic. And these terms are used quite a bit in the interpretation of John. And I want to highlight that at the very heart of Jehannan theology is that the other, the ultimate other, becomes flesh. So the incarnation is actually the most profound act of de-othering in the biblical story. Uh, and perhaps one might argue in history. Uh, so the fact that the ultimate other de-others by becoming flesh, uh, I think that has to lie at the heart of how we understand what John is doing in those scenes or in the language that we find often to be more sectarian or more anti. So this book which is or this this ancient narrative of Jesus, John's gospel, uh, the these scenes that we so draw um, we so draw attention to, like in John eight forty four, for instance, which is a very difficult text that has caused so has caused so much pain in the history of the church, and in the history of the church's relationship with Judaism. Uh, I think to read that without understanding, without taking into account this theological idea of the other becoming flesh, Jewish flesh, in fact, um, I, I think we're missing something. I, I think uh, we do have to attend to that theological anchor when we are interpreting John. And it might be helpful just to, to maybe sharpen what we mean or what you mean by othering and the other. So what what do you mean by the word other and othering, and what sorts of othering is John dealing in, in his gospel? Yes. Yeah, the, the language of othering, in, in some ways, this is trendy language, I think. Uh, we see it everywhere, don't we? And uh, because it has such purchase in uh, popular discourse, uh, whether it's in social media or in reading the newspaper, newspaper or in hearing interviews of celebrities, and that, because it has such discourse at the pop or such purchase at the popular level, I wanted to in, employ this language because I am writing actually for the academy, but I'm hoping that informed lay readers and ministers will also pick up this book, and the the whole concept of the other. It's a way of uh, pathologizing difference. That is, someone is different from us. They are other. But the, a program of othering involves then taking their difference from us and um, labeling it in a negative way by caricaturing this person or this group, by, by uh, oversimplifying the identity of this person or this group 
uh, by uh, locating them within a very narrow definition of who they are, uh, defining them by very stereotypical traits. Uh, yeah, so when I first came across this language of othering, it wasn't by reading the newspaper. It wasn't by uh, w- watching um, you know, comedians on Netflix. <laughs> I came across this by uh, reading Jayanine Scholarship. So, uh, so I wanted to capitalize on this. Um, what does it mean uh, for, for, for writers to say that John is guilty of othering when the ultimate other becomes flesh? There is an act of de-othering as well. So I do think that John is involved in what we would now label negative labeling or we would call what we would call othering. I do think he is involved in that, but I don't think it's necessarily along the lines that we uh, often assume. So I think for John, the ultimate negative other would, of course, be the ruler of this world. It would be cosmic darkness personified in the ruler of this world. Uh, And for John, the closer one is aligned to that negative other of the cosmic entity of darkness, uh, the more likely they are to be othered in a negative way within John's gospel. But you also have a and I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit of myself in the interview, but you also you you have a you have a, a section at toward the end of the book where you talk about sort of a positive othering that takes place internally for the community. So what does it mean for for the community to positively other itself? Yes, yes, right. So so part of why there is such a sectarian interpretation of John is because of this difference and. Uh, over the course of the past 50 years, 60 years, we have been elaborating on these uh, these theories of communities behind the gospel text. We've got a Markan, Matthean, Lucan, and Johannine community. Uh, and then we've been able to, if we have a Johannine community, that we can then apply these uh, sociological and social scientific models of the sect or the anti-society Uh, to this hypothesized community. And we're able to do this in some ways because John seems so different and seems to come from a group that is antagonized within society and responds to that society in an antagonistic way, in a hostile way with its harsh language and its insular ethics. Uh, That's the way the reading goes in the sectarian hermeneutic, at least. Well, I think actually... There is truth to this. John is different. John is uh, understanding. John's coming out of a community that understands itself as other. And the language I use is that of um, self-othering. The Johannine network, I would say, uh, is it does perceive itself as aligned with the ultimate other, God, uh, who through the Logos becomes flesh and dwells among us. And that otherness is actually a um, a salvific otherness, if you will. Because for John, only someone other can save. Only someone from outside the matrix of our uh, contemporary existence. Only someone from outside the cosmic realm uh, can enter in and actually save and rescue. And the, jo- the Johannine vision of community is that of self-othering. We align ourselves with this other, but that is an other. I'm using this capital O with other. This divine other with which the Johannine followers are to align themselves. Uh, 
the other extends open arms, and it's out of the otherness that it that this one is able to offer us a, a salvation that is actually uh, viable within this cosmos. And you actually you, you press some of that into the service of thinking about not just theolo- the the theology of John, but actually the writing of John or the na- the the genre of gospel as perhaps I, I mean other but non-competitive. That's quite important to your critique of the sectarian hermeneutic, if I've understood you um, the right way. So you, you argue for the possible of this non-competitive diversity within the gospel tradition. So I just, um, what evidence do you see in John's gospel um, itself that that he intends his gospel as other, but as a perhaps a generative supplement and not as a replacement, a competitive replacement to the synoptic tradition? Yes, the uh, the trend to interpret difference as enmity, uh, diversity as an adversity to overcome, that's long embedded in our field of biblical studies. So if you see texts that, em- that, uh, that emblematize something different than what the other text says, well, they must have been fighting this out. These had to have been rivals. They were combative. And, uh, you know, in some cases, they, that certainly had to have been the case. But I don't get the impression from early Christianity that just because Paul confronts Peter in, uh, in Antioch, I mean, that's a, that had to have been a very disturbing scene. It doesn't mean that Paul hates Peter and anything Petrine, he would have shredded if he had gotten it on a piece of parchment, um, if Timothy had brought it along with him at some point. You know, I, I don't think that we necessarily have to construe difference as enmity. Uh, John is most certainly different, and we see that clearly in the comparative readings of John and the other Gospels. But to get back to your question, what evidence do I see that uh, John uh, envisions what he's doing in Gospel writing as a non-competitive act? Uh, I, I think it's in the, the colophons of John, actually, the, the closing of John 20 and the closing of John 21. There is an acknowledgement that Jesus has done other things. He has performed other signs. And, oh, guess what? We could keep writing and writing and writing, and the world itself cannot contain all that would be written. I think John is writing late enough that not only is he aware of at least one of the synoptics, I think he's probably aware at least of Mark and Luke. But if if he is writing within this increasingly crowded field, as Francis Watson calls it, uh, of gospel production, then I, I, think, I think we get a, a sense that he knows he's doing that, that he is aware his readers will know of other gospels. And it's that, it's that theology of superabundance, so many more things that Jesus has done. We could write books and books and books and never touch on, never fully be able to express the wonder and the, the depths and the riches of who Jesus is. I think it's in that theology of Christological superabundance that he feels free to write something that's different. And of course, there may be a bit of maybe a mild competitiveness. Uh, uh, he certainly is wanting to situate his work as one that is absolutely authoritative. But does it mean that he wants to uh, supplant the other gospel writers. 
I think his writing is one of wanting to situate his alongside what he knows. These are already accepted texts. I don't think he envisions replacing them as necessarily a possibility. Uh, he definitely wants his voice heard, uh, but does it mean that he wants to uh, that that he envisions Mark as this um, this nemesis out there with a pen that he wants to you know <laughs> throw down by his own version? Um, yeah, I, I, obviously you can read this in multiple different ways, but I think we read too much toward the idea of Jehanine enmity toward the other uh, early Christian writers, and that's not necessary. I think those colophons help us to see there's space here. John envisions there being space for him to write something else that's different, but yet still can be situated alongside the Jesus tradition. So when John writes, these things are written, he's not saying these things and not other things. He's saying these things I wrote, and there might also be other things that you should read alongside mine. Is that how we should take that? I think so. I don't think he has a choice. I, I think the, the gospel texts are established enough, or at least some gospel texts are established enough that, that he knows uh, other, other gospel texts are inevitable. Uh, I, th- I think what he's primarily trying to do is make sure we can read his work, these things that he has produced alongside those others. Yeah, that sounds convincing to me. I like it. <laughs> As someone who has to teach both the synoptics and John and want, wants to make a case that we should you know, continue to teach John. Um, let's change things up a little bit. You're a, li- a listener to OnScript. You know, sometimes we do a speed round. I have a speed round. Okay. The rules for the speed round are that you answer with the first thing that comes into your head and you don't have to defend your answer, but I also don't always follow my own rules. So okay. good luck. Ready? Yes. Okay. Um, what food tastes most like home? Chick-fil-A, but I can't get it here. <laughs> oh, well that, that, that mixes my next question, which is what food do you most miss living um, in the UK as an American? <laughs> mm, well, I would say also uh, Mexican food oh. that, I know. The uh we're having a a lament, aren't we, together yeah. Uh, yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. The uh yeah, I think now we love so much of the eating experience in the UK, but when something is labeled as Mexican food and we go, we're always disappointed. So Although yeah. you you've now moved from Durham to Cambridge and Durham and London are the only two places in the UK that I've ever had Mexican food that actually tastes good like there's a good taco place in durham and there's a good taco place in london (laughs) and both of those places are very far from where i live (laughs) yes no i know what you're talking about in durham that 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 restaurant came in our final year there and oh i love that place that place it's (laughs) yeah see now we should we should have a pilgrimage to the durham taco place please let it stay (laughs) open because they don't seem to do well here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> oh, anyway. All right. Uh, what book in biblical studies or theology has most influenced you as a scholar? Oh, wow. Y- you think you're prepared for these things. Um, I- I'm turning to look at the books on my shelf No, no here. cheating. Uh, oh, yeah. That's cheating. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I- I'll tell you. Okay. First things that came to mind. Uh, uh, you can pick two. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe Georgia Eldon Ladd, Theology of the New Testament, 
uh, and uh, Richard Hayes' moral vision of the New Testament. What Harry Potter house would you be in? I hope, I just hope it would be Gryffindor. That's my hope. Now on your bio, it says that you have a dog named Hagrid. Is that true? That's the best name for a dog. (laughs) Yeah, I confess it is true. And he is very cute and uh, very annoying to me. Not to anyone else in my family, just to me. But he is cute. Is he big? No, no, he's tiny. He's, He's small and fluffy, but that fits, right? Because Fang whose name implies danger uh, is actually a big coward as Haggard himself puts it. And Fluffy is the scary one who's gigantic. So we, we felt like we feel like the dog is well-named. Oh, well, that's great. Um, what's one thing you wish all of your students knew? Greek. Yeah. First thing came to mind. Greek. Yeah. Um, tea or coffee? Coffee. And do you know how to make a pop, uh, like a proper cup of tea yet? After living here for 11 years. Well, I think so. We used to host a cell group from our church at our house. And uh, and one of the aspects of hosting uh, fellow Brits is that they're too kind to tell you if you haven't done it properly. <laughs> so I hope for those 10 years that I made tea for everyone who came over to my house, I hope I did it right. But I'm not entirely sure they would have told me if I didn't. No, that's true. They do They do subtly shame you if you don't offer them tea at the right time which is a, a learning experience. <laughs> so, well, so I, I did always offer it. I'm just not sure if I delivered in yeah, what I offered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They always smiled and accepted it and they drank it. But uh, I, I, I like the cups of tea that I make. There you go. Uh, yeah. And I, I have heard some positive comments. I have That's to say. That's good. That's from time good. to time. Yeah. Yeah. We had a subtle shaming. Not even, it wasn't even subtle when we were having our, our, our house remodeled and um, we'd have builders come in and be like really offended that we didn't offer them cups of tea despite not having running water. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, my American couldn't, couldn't quite get over that. Um, okay. What's the scariest animal? Oh, a virus. Is that an animal? Is that an animal? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Okay. Uh, animal, animal. Okay. First thing comes to mind, uh, is an alligator because I grew up in the deep South and I remember I studied forestry at undergrad at University of Georgia uh, and uh, very helpful because the Bible does have a lot of trees in it. But uh, but I remember going on a, on a field trip and we were out at night by this lake in South Georgia and uh, we shined a flashlight out there and you could see the eyes glowing and a sudden splash of water where it went underneath the water really quickly and spending time on Cumberland Island, these alligators. Yeah. So that, yeah, they scare me a bit. Yeah. I think that's fair. That's why I moved to England. Yeah, exactly. There's no scary animals here. None. (laughs) Yeah. After I, we lived in Colorado and I I think I'd be torn between like some sort of snake and a, and a mountain lion, but. um, Oh, good point. Yeah. And bears. My goodness. Yeah. They're not as, they don't, they don't hunt you though. (laughs) Mountain lions hunt people. Anyway, um, yeah, that's true. if you had to pick another profession, what would it be? Oh, I would be a pastor. Okay. If you had to pick a non-theological profession, what would it be? Right. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I would be a novelist. Oh. Okay. Favorite novel. Ooh. Oh, that's, that's tough. Uh, I love Les Mis. I love Watership Down. I love Brothers Karamazov. So many, so many choices. Oh, no, 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 no. Lord of the Rings is my favorite, though. That would be my favorite. I I know that's a set of three. Yeah, I mean, then you you have to differentiate. Never mind. I'm not even going to ask you to do that. Um, I I would say Return of the King, then. Yeah. Although I was really disappointed when I read it the first time and realized the final final third were all appendices. 
I thought I had a lot more pages left uh, of the story. So now it's a return of the king, perhaps. Uh, and Andy, can you tell us a joke right now? Oh, I, I'm, no, I, you put me on the spot. I'm, I'm constantly accused in my home of making terrible dad jokes all the time, but none of them come to mind. Maybe one of my kids has to walk in the room and then I could do it. Uh, do you have one? Do I have a joke? No, no, I'm not okay. giving answers. Wow. <laughs> I wish this were more fun, but I just, yeah. I mean, I was really, Andy is, is a dad of, of four kids, right? That's right. Four kids. How do you not have a dad joke? Most of my dad jokes I make up on the spot. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the problem. <laughs> my daughter loves dad jokes, like passionately loves bad, bad dad jokes. Oh, good for her. Bless her. Yeah. That will change soon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, she's getting to the point where she's embarrassed at the very thought of having parents. So we're just, you know. We're looking forward to that. Um, yeah. Okay. So shifting gears entirely back to the interview uh, on a much more serious subject. Uh, let's, let's dive into this very polemical language in the gospel of John, because the polemical language against the Udaya really, um, I mean, it's, it's problematic, but let's, let's pinpoint it further. And it comes to a head um, in John eight, where on the lips of Jesus, we hear, you know, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. So how does this strong statement fit in your, um, your understanding of John's program of um, othering and de-othering? This scene in John 8, uh, and particularly the verse you referred to, John eight forty four. 44, uh, this haunts me. I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm looking at uh, Susanna Heschel's book, The Aryan Jesus. I keep right here next to me. And uh, I, I want to be constantly reminded of how this text can be interpreted and how it has been interpreted. And uh, I'm wanting to, uh, as someone who works within the life of the church and trains future ministers of the gospel, who loves John's gospel, I don't want that text to mean what other people have said that it means. But that's not reason to defend it. So uh, this chapter I have called John and Other Jews is dedicated to working exegetically um, throughout John's gospel, how he is presenting the identity of the people of God and what might be happening here in this scene. So the, the starting point of the conversation is often, it's either John 4.22 or John 8.44. So those who see John as anti-Jewish will begin the conversation usually with John 8.44, where Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. But those who would defend John or explain or explain away, perhaps, as Adele Reinhardt has put it, who would explain away or who would defend John as not being anti-Jewish, might point to John 4.22, where Jesus uh, is, you know, he says salvation comes from the Jews. And we see in that scene that Jesus, of course, is recognized as a eudios, as a, as a Jew. My starting point is the prologue. And in the prologue, we have established immediately that the identity of the people of God, according to John, are not born out of blood, out of the will of the husband, they're not born out of flesh. They are born ek theu. They are born out of God. 
So right from the beginning, John is doing, he's doing something, I think, very similar to what Luke and Matthew do, who also have in the very beginning, or very early on at least, they have John the Baptist accusing certain Jewish leaders um, of wanting to rely on the laurels of their biological descent. You know, hey, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, says John the Baptist in Luke and in Matthew. John, even earlier, establishes that what we're looking at, what, what he's interested in here, is presenting Jesus through whom the people of God are construed as being not uh, ethnically defined, but divinely determined, born ekthau, born out of God. And of course, we see that theme develop uh, throughout John's gospel, uh, particularly uh, a particularly important scene is one in, with Nicodemus, one must be born from above, right, from the divine sphere. And when we come to John chapter 8, what I think John is polemically opposed to is what I call in the book an ethnicizing a soteriology, or a, uh, a racializing of ecclesiology. I think that John is a Jewish writer who is opposed to any vision of salvation or covenant membership that's premised primarily on or solely on biological descent. Uh, and what we see happening in that scene uh, is a reliance of those he is engaged with in conversation and discussion. Uh, we see his interlocutors who are uh, appealing to their Abrahamic descent. And John has no problem with acknowledging, G Jesus acknowledges that, yes, of course, we know that you are seed, sperma of Abraham. So he recognizes their biological descent from Abraham. But this does not make them a children, does not make them children of Abraham. And what Jesus seems to be attacking, even though he is addressing a group that we recognize as being labeled through an ethnic identifier, Hoyudaioi, the Jews, what he's criticizing in this scene is not their ethnicity, it's not their biological descent, it's not ethnicity, it's their ethics that he's questioning here. Uh, because they have aligned themselves with lying and murder which are the characteristic traits in, literature, in the Jehannine literature uh, for uh, the devil, for cosmic darkness. So I think in the scene, what we see happening is not a racial slur. What we see happening here is John sharply criticizing uh, what he perceives as malevolent intent to kill, which that's what's associated with the devil. That's what's diabolical. Uh, being Jewish isn't diabolical for John. It's being murderous, having murderous intent. So the whole language of Udayoi, you know, why, why would John, if he is a Jewish writer, why would he cast, why would he label as the primary enemies of Jesus, at least on the human sphere within his narrative, why would he have a Jew negatively addressing other Jews as the Jews? I think it's because John is allowing, uh, John is granting the preferred self-designation of these interlocutors of Jesus, who envision that the primary means of covenant belonging, the primary means of soteriological um, prerequisite, that, that's defined ethnically. You must be a eudios. 
then we know that this was happening in early Judaism. Now, John is a Jew who, like other Jews at the time, had a much more broader understanding of Jewish identity. It's not just a Christian. <laughs> this isn't just a Christian um, reading. This is also an early Jewish critique of another early Jewish uh, idea that Israel was solely ethnic Israel. And I think John is granting the preferred self-designation of Udioi to these Jews who want people to be Udioi in order to be in God's covenant family. That's really helpful. Can you, um, but but you do argue that John is making um, an exclusive theological claim about yes. who the people of God yes. are. You talk about Jesus as the Johannine gate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is it fair to say that this, that, that John does have, um, an otherness that's theologically determined? I think it would be, it would be wrong to present John as a Christian writer who offers this universal Christian inclusivism that challenges the Jewish exclusivism. What's happening is that John is being exclusivist, but he's doing it in a different way. Um, by exclusivist, that is, there, there is an othering. There is a, a difference between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. He is criticizing, um, he's criticizing an ethnic way of determining who's in and who's out. But he does offer a way that recognizes some are in and some are out. But it's not ethnically determined, it's confessionally determined. So Jesus uh, becomes the one's orientation toward Jesus, one's uh, reception of Jesus, that's what determines covenant membership. Now that's controversial in and of itself, but it isn't you must be uh, ethnically Jewish uh, in order to be part of God's family. But John does present the idea that one must uh, receive Jesus, one must receive the Logos uh, in order to be a part of this divine family. Um, yeah, so I, I think it would be wrong. I, 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 th- I think often, I mentioned this in the book, that there is a different way of being anti-Jewish. Is when you say, well, Judaism is exclusivist and Christianity is open to all. Uh, that can also be a way of being anti-Jewish, can't it? So uh, I think it's just important to be honest with the fact that there are different ways of othering here. Uh, but John is criticizing an ethnic othering uh, and wants to offer... By, by universalistic, it means that you don't have to come from a particular biological orientation or a genealogy in order to receive Jesus, but the reception of Jesus is uh, the primary way of membership, according to John. And yeah, and I think that's very well explained um, both here and in your book. My my question is, and it's it's probably the the most pressing probing question that I'm going to ask you because it's the one I'm that that lingers with me. Um, as I teach the Gospel of John as a non-Jewish, you know, confessional Christian. But is John's theologically driven otherness that we see, and I think you've articulated really well, is that otherness less problematic than, you know, the ethnic otherness that um, we could see? Um, and is it less problematic to say that John is is theologically driven in his his othering of the Jews uh, when we set that against the backdrop of anti-Judaism? Or um, does this theological otherness properly understood 
should it lead us somewhere fundamentally different than the anti-Semitism that has so often and too often been funded by the polemical words in John's gospel? Does that make sense? I, I think so. And I'm, I will make a stab at answering this and you can feel free to, no, to steer no. me. Okay. You if, are, if I'm not, I, I just teach, I, I teach John. I am not a Johannine expert for, cause you're your own little enclave. You're trying to break out of it, but it's, 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 <laughs> no, wait a minute. <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. I'm just John, kidding. Johannine scholars as the sectarians within biblical scholarship. Yeah, you know that's we, uh, a little bit true. I I wonder to the degree to which this sectarian hermeneutic or sectarian reading of John is just a spinning out of the sectarian mm. identity of Johannine scholars within the guild. Like that, that. That's that's an amazing question. That that deserves. There's a book right there, and maybe you should write. But but I think some of us in gospel scholarship. So I like to think of myself more as a gospel scholar. But I am primarily doing stuff with John. I, I do look at the the Paul folks, and I think yeah, they are in their own little world as well over there. Um, and and they don't pay attention to the fact that you know we've got these gospels that are really amazing about Jesus. Um. Anyway, I I love all. Uh, uh, all these texts and interacting with these scholars, I learned so much from them. But I, there, there is a bit of competition, isn't there, between gospel scholars and Pauline scholars at times? You may not know this, but I think there is. Yeah. If if I don't know it, it's because there's not really a competition. It's not really a competition. Sorry. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll just take that. Uh, so, uh, is 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 the the theological otherness that John brings? Is it better than? Is that part of what you're asking? Is it better than this other form of otherness? I mean, is it less problematic to say that John has an otherness that's theological, mm. not, it's not, you know, it's not anti-Semitic in that it's it's naming and and um, excluding an ethnic group, but it is theological. Does that lead us to a different different yes, place, a different conclusion or a different ethic or a different action? I, I will preface the response by saying that, um, that the response that, that the the uh, the vision that John wants to counter that one must be ethnically Jewish to be a covenant member of Israel uh, that that is not necessarily the that is not the Jewish way of thinking about Israel that is one way of thinking about Israel that John wants to counter and challenge but there are other Jewish ways of thinking about Israel at the time John's writing. And John is one of them who has a very Jewish way of thinking about Israel, which is an Israel reconstituted around Messiah, who is Jesus, according to John. And uh, yeah, so so what's what might be the, the, the advantage of this theological otherness versus an ethnicizing otherness? Uh, is it less problematic? I, I think it's just problematic in different ways, actually. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, one could argue that the advantage would be that no one is excluded. R race and ethnicity are not exclusionary. All right. But there is still this reception of Jesus that um, that is still e exclusionary. But uh, that that reception of Jesus one is not already predisposed in one way or another on the basis of their DNA. So I, I think I think there are some riches there for us to explore. Uh, but again, that sort of racial 
or, or that ethnic that exclusion being exclusive on the basis of race and ethnicity that we see John challenging in John chapter eight and throughout various scenes in the gospel. Again, that is not the sole idea of uh, that. That doesn't represent monolithically Judaism at the time uh, or Judaism today necessarily. So uh, yeah, this theological otherness is problematic in different ways, particularly as you know, we think about John and read John within a very pluralistic and, and highly secularized society. Uh, but I do want to draw attention to the fact that throughout John's gospel, even though there is this sharp cosmological dualism, even though there is this, this distinction between light and darkness, there is uh, a divine other uh, who becomes flesh and de-others, but yet the reception of this de-othering other uh, creates a different form of othering in a way. Even so, John creates a lot of ambiguity in his depiction of characters. So there is a very clear depiction of light and dark. But then when you actually read the, the story, <laughs> things are not as straightforward at times as you might think. And I think that ambiguity is something that... Uh, we really do need to attend to as we look at how this might be proclaimed from churches in our contemporary, in our contemporary cultural moment. Uh, we don't always know exactly what's going on. Uh, and where people fall along this, these cosmological dualistic lines, it's not always quite as straightforward. And the, the, John himself allows for quite a bit of gray and for uh, characters to be on journeys, actually, on a bit of a journey. Um, but there is a gate. Jesus is the gate, the door. And uh, I think the idea of Jesus as a gate is extremely important because there is this idea of invitation that John extends, that, that the gate, Jesus, extends. Um, and that gate seems to open uh, to the outsider, but also it does seem to swing the other way as well so that the insider can leave. We see that in the epistles a bit. So, uh, yeah, I think that's important to recognize that within this, uh, within this other way of reconstructing Israel and the people of God around the person of Jesus, uh, this person is presented to us as a gate uh, and there's invitation as well as uh, there, there, there's there's openness to egress as well as uh, ingress, coming and going. Thanks, that's helpful. Um, and and I, I have to ask a, a Pauline scholar reading a book on Johannine studies question now, um, because you've mentioned this a few times. You make this point that the real enemy in John's gospel is this cosmic enemy, which um, makes Johannine theology sound at least in your version of it, really like apocalyptic in its, you know, talk of cosmic stages and of death and of the evil one. And um, is that, is that typical in Johannine studies? Um, or do you, do you catch flack for, for these very, you know, large grand sweeping statements about cosmic stages? Um, like we do sometimes when we talk <laughs> this way in, in Pauline studies. Well, well, for me, using this language just feels very Johannine, actually. I mean, cosmos is a very key term that he's using. And, uh, yeah, the idea of sort of penetration of our own cosmic sphere by uh, through the incarnation. Uh, this is heaven sort of uh, trespassing into 
the cosmic domain. Yeah, that feels that that's all very Johannine and feels quite at home, I think, in an apocalyptic framework. Uh, I'm not catching flack for this yet. Maybe it's because, um, you know, I haven't been on many podcasts with Pauline scholars yet. But uh, but but actually, uh, th- there are some works that are looking into this. Um, my friend Ben at, at Tyndale College, he, he he's got a book from uh, with Oxford University Press looking at this. So I, actually, I think there's quite a bit of work to be done in apocalypticism and John, uh, and some scholars are doing it. But I, I do find John is a very, uh, I, I find that John and Paul have a lot in common, and even with this idea of Israel and uh, the, the idea of uh, of, of Abrahamic lineage. I, I think there's quite a bit that Paul and John have in common. Oh, well, it warmed my heart as someone who reads Paul fairly apocalyptically. So um, yeah, it just made me feel like, oh, it is, it is, you know, well, maybe it's not, maybe people would argue that it's in John and it's not in Paul, but so you move in in the chapters between this kind of cosmic plane and then down into sort of seamlessly into the nitty gritty of John's audience in its historical context to talk about um, things that are a, a little more concrete, like um, like the Johanna community and like ecclesiology. And you've written an entire book on this, so um, I'm sure you could talk about this at length. But can you just give us a brief um, sketch here on your take on John's ecclesiology, if he has one? Sure. The uh, m- My first monograph on John begins with, uh, this book is not about the community behind the text but within but on the johannine the vision of the johannine community within the text uh yeah and and that is primarily what my concern has been but there is a history here and this is i think the uh one of the great gifts of uh lou martin's work history and theology in the fourth gospel is he recognizes that this text does not just fall as some spiritual document from from heaven into our ecclesial laps (laughs) this this thing came out of historical, uh, actual historical realities and struggles. Uh, but as I talk about in the book, the uh, the, the problem with the, the with the construction of historical communities, and it's a problem that Martin was very well aware of, and so is Brown, and both of them highly qualified their work. The, the problem is that once we produce and reconstruct a hypothetical community, then we sort of concretize our hypothesis by rereading the text through the lens of that community. And as biblical scholars oriented so deeply toward history, it's very difficult for us to work without a history. We want to throttle these texts until they will give us one. And when we finally get the Johannine community in place and we, we, we then can create lengthy details, uh, lengthy chronological details about you know who they were and what was happening to them. The problem is when we hold that too tightly. And for me, I do think there is a Johannine network is the language I would prefer to use than Johannine community. I think uh, John is networked. Not only is there a group of Christians that we might look back and say are Johannine, they they meet in different locations, and I think they actually are also connected with other Christian groups. Um, we can't know much more than that. I also think that this network is predominantly Jewish, at least began to be in its beginnings, was primarily predominantly Jewish. 
So I think the overall idea that Martin has presented and Brown as well and others have developed this, that there was an intra-Jewish conflict, uh, I think that makes sense of the text. But I don't want to, I don't want to go I don't want to press those details too far and then reconstruct too tidily uh, this this idea of who these people are. Uh, so I, I am trying to work with history, but doing it in a way that doesn't concretize an, a hypothesis that can't be proven. Uh, John's ecclesiology. So John's ecclesiology arises out of this. And I think what we have here is uh, a Jewish group of people who have come to the conviction that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and is divine in some extraordinary way. And I think they've been pressed by fellow Jews. They've been accused of betraying their own scriptural and theological traditions. And so Jehannine ecclesiology, I think, arises out of uh, constructing Israel as conceived around the divine Christ, Jesus, uh, and the identity of this, this ecclesial identity is premised no longer on, or not on the basis of uh, ethnicity, uh, but on the basis of Jesus' reception. And once Jesus is received, there is this idea that I, I call it theosis. It's very controversial, I know. But there is this idea of, of the people of God becoming divine. They are birthed out of God in some way, born from above. So John's ecclesiology is that of a divine community in kinship with the Father and the Son. Um, dare, dare, I'm going to go there. By, by the Holy Spirit. I just went and became very Trinitarian there. I think that is at least implied in John's text. Uh, and yeah, so so this is a vision of Israel that is divine, but premised on reception of Jesus. And most of the time when, when Johannine scholars talk about John's ecclesiology, they're very quick to point out that this divine community, as John conceives, is, 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 is non-hierarchical. It doesn't have the hierarchy of the early church. Um, and you want to make the case that actually an Episcopal ecclesiology and John's charismatic pneumatology are not at odds with each other. So convince convince the listeners that John's um, John can be both charismatic in his pneumatology and um, have some place for Episcopal hierarchy. Yes, Aaron, you are right. This is standard in readings of John's ecclesiology is that John is anti-hierarchical. To, to continue on with the prefix anti, John is anti-hierarchical. And, yeah, but we like him for that. Well, kind of. <laughs> careful now. You are in an Anglican seminary. But, uh, the, the guild kind of likes him for that. I don't like the, I don't like the other antis. We like, but we like this one. Yeah, no, no, that is true. That is true. There, there is a sort of ongoing love-hate with John. We, we uh, it, it is interesting. You see this in the scholarship of the mid and late 20th century, uh, uh, what we see in Boltmann, don't we? So uh, th this idea that John is not um, Catholic in its structures, all right? I say that because a lot of German Protestant scholarship is producing some of this literature. Um, and yeah, so, so John is viewed as very low church. And now that is my background. I I'm ordained as a Baptist minister, all right? And uh, so so I'm teaching in an Anglican seminary, but uh, but but what I'm 
what, what I find very interesting in these discussions in Johannine scholarship is that I, I, I wonder if we are mapping some of our own contemporary ecclesiological ideas back onto the first century and early second century. And uh, I share in the book a story of me sitting in a coffee shop. I was doing some studies, uh, doing something very responsible, I'm sure, and studying something, working on a lecture. I don't know. And, uh, and I overheard a friend of mine sitting at a nearby table. Wait, what is even this? How is this possible? And I asked to take a conversation. What, what are you talking about? And they come across this story in some magazine they were reading about a charismatic Anglican. Shocking. <laughs> charismatic Catholics. Wait, how, how is this possible? Because there is a contemporary stereotype we have that if you are spirit-filled, then you're not going to have the spirit quenched by things like hierarchies and liturgies. <laughs> and I wonder if that stereotype, that caricature of how spirit-filled, charismatic Christianity works, uh, I wonder if that's been mapped back onto the Johannine community in a way. All right, so now that there are some reasons why uh, John is, is viewed as being anti-hierarchical, but I do wonder if we are operating out of some assumptions that you can't be charismatic and liturgical, charismatic and hierarchical. In fact, it may well be that the reason uh, uh, Diotrephes and uh, John are at odds is because Diotrephes does not recognize some form of what we might call Episcopal authority residing in John. And I, I don't think that John was necessarily hierarchical or liturgical, but I do think to make these sweeping statements and to just dismiss John as, again, anti the rest of early Christianity that was developing these liturgical and hierarchical uh, structures within its worship life, I, I think that's unfounded. And I use the example of Ignatius of Antioch. We attribute to Ignatius of Antioch, uh, well, it, it, it's Ignatius that we find the most developed form of the threefold ministry of uh, episcopos, bishop, elder, and deacon. And actually, when you read through these uh, these early letters that we have from Ignatius, he premises his whole theology of church hierarchy on themes that John would find actually uh, very familiar. This idea of reciprocity, this idea of participation. Um, we see John doing the same sort of thing in his gospel, and uh, we even detect, I think, a bit of it in the epistles as well. So, so I'm just trying to problematize this easy dismissal of John as, oh yes, uh, sectarian and anti-early Catholicism, because clearly John does not like there to be any hierarchies, because John places emphasis on the spirit who speaks in the life of the community. These things are not incompatible. And that's the point of that uh, chapter, John and Other Christians. I think it's part two. Yeah, and then and then you conclude your your book with a chapter on Johannine theology, um, which is very theological, uh, appropriately so. And you give a, 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 a full. You. I mean, and yeah, I, for a biblical scholar, I mean, it's it's really refreshing to read that sort of um, just weighty. I mean, it seems weighty to me, dogmatic 
category using um, exegesis of these texts. So um, I, I would really commend if people are interested in theological reading, um, this is this is a book that uh, has some really, really rich uh, theological reading. And um, I was particularly interested in um well, and you've talked about it at length in this interview, even, but in your, um, in your Christology, but the, you even, you flesh that out further in this chapter and you talk about triadic divinity, um, and Johanna and otherness in triadic divinity. Um, and then I guess the question that I have, um, well, first of all, what do you mean by the otherness in the Trinity? Like, how does that play out in John? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. and then I, I wonder if you could, if you could say a bit more about how um, human otherness might image yes. this divine otherness. Yes. Yeah, so I have referred in the podcast so far to this idea of the, the ultimate other becoming flesh, and that is an act of de-othering at a cosmic level um, and at the nitty gritty level as well. And what I see embodied in John's theology is a perichoretic otherness. Uh, so perichoresis, this idea of um, uh, internal interaction of the divine figures. Uh, John so creatively opens with uh, the logos and the theos. And when you read those opening lines, you sort of think at first, oh, these are equated. But then you read the next clause, oh, these are distinguished from one another. Then the next clause, oh, they're the same. And then the very next clause Uh, Oh, they're distinguished again. So there is this plurality and unity together. And so you have these two figures who are unified. They are one, but yet they are other from one another. And of course, the way the spirit is brought in later in John's gospel is an extra narrative character. Primarily, you can envision that this perichoretic otherness of divinity includes the spirit. So right there within John's theology of the father, of the son, and of the paraclete, there is a perichoretic otherness in which one can be other without being antagonistic. Otherness does not necessarily mean uh, enmity or antagonism. This, I think, has so much to teach us in our contemporary society. This idea that otherness and difference can actually be a means by which unity and oneness uh, can be embodied. And we see it at the very heart of John's theology. But then John's John's vision of this perichoretic otherness, it opens up to include the human other, the mortal other. And so there is this invitation all throughout John's gospel, and we see it uh, more fleshed out in the epistles at times, uh, in which uh, more, the mortal other, the sinful mortal other, is actually invited to be included within, can participate within the perichoretic otherness of divinity. Uh, if, if God can be other within himself and can invite uh, the other who is mortal within uh, a sort of divine kinship, that says quite a bit to a contemporary world full of othering and division, uh, that unity and plurality can coexist in some powerful and beautiful way. Yeah. Andy, what are your hopes for this book? I suppose I hope 
people might read it. That's always a hope <laughs> okay, when you other, write a book. Other than that, if we reach higher than people reading it, which I'm sure they will. Uh, you, you never know. I, it, it's it's hard. You just never know. You, you never know with these things. Um, the uh, I, I hope they will read it. And I hope, uh, I hope that the sectarian hermeneutic, this default way of reading the Johannine literature as uh, inherently insular, unconcerned with an outward orientation toward those who are different from it. I, I hope that this sectarian hermeneutic is blunted. You know, maybe, maybe even that it crumbles a bit. I also hope that, um, I, I feel at times that, that the shibboleth of Jehanine studies, that one must say at the door to get a seat at the table, is John is anti-Jewish. I almost feel like we have to say that. Um, now, what I think would be absolutely wrong would be to deny John's role, even if it's inadvertent. I would say it's an inadvertent role. John's role in the long and horrific history of anti-Judaism. Uh, that would be wrong to deny that. But I, I, I hope that we don't have to say John is anti-Jewish um, just to get a seat at the table, because I think exegetically we can show that something more is going on than an anti-ethnic, an anti or a demonizing of ethnicity. I don't think that's what is happening. It's a demonizing of the demonic. Uh, so, so I, I hope that this goes some way toward exegetically and responsibly um, deconstructing anti-Jewish ways of reading and interpreting John. I'm not just saying that because I want fellow scholars not to say John is anti-Jewish. I, I, I don't want fellow Christians to be reading this text and thinking it means, oh, now we can hold up placards that, you know, unite the right rallies that call Jews Satan's children. I, I, so so I'm, I'm hoping that the book will go some way towards killing that reading. <laughs> um, yeah, and I also hope it becomes... I hope I hope it goes some way towards restoring John as a valid text for contemporary society, a text that has something to, to teach us. John is a text that does come from the margins. I don't deny that. And actually, as a voice from the margins, it has something to say about power. And, you know, I think we see in John, John Jehanine resistance, it is not violent. It's not retributive. Put your sword back into its sheath. Jesus says to Peter, Jehanine justice is restorative. It's not punitive. And John is honest about cosmic evil. And, and I think in a secular world where you don't have some sense of cosmic darkness out there, we don't demonize demons. We demonize one another. And I, I think this honesty that there is cosmic darkness out there with which we can align ourselves. Uh, I think that's actually extremely important. So I, I hope that, uh, we blunt the sectarian hermeneutic. I th hope that this book helps blunt that sectarian hermeneutic of re in reading John. I hope it, um, I hope it undermines any sort of anti-Jewish interpretation of John, and I also hope it helps us think through how to be human in contemporary society. Modest goals, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's and and. I 
I really, I, I read this book on, on my vacation, um, which I think, yeah, well, but, oh, but it was such a life, it was a really life giving book to read because it, it does feel really relevant for being a monograph. Um, it's hard to write a relevant monograph. So well done for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Onscript listeners, that's all the time we have today. We've been speaking to Dr. Andy Byers about his new book, John and the Others, which you can pick up at your favorite purveyor of niche academic books. Um, Andy, thanks so much for joining us. And um, thanks to all of you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Erin. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.